You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Texas Governor Greg Abbott says the gunman who killed 19 children and two adults used Facebook to talk about his plans. But the social network clarifies, claiming the posts were actually private messages. We will bring you the very latest as we learn more about this horrific turn of events. Plus, lessons learned from Twitter's annual shareholder meeting, investors voicing concerns about Elon Musk's looming takeover. And just after the meeting wraps, Musk files to change the balance of equity and debt in the deal. Our own Ed Ludlow will join us live from the ground. And Meta and Amazon holding their annual meetings as well. It's the first one for Amazon CEO Andy Jassy, how he addressed growing concerns about worker safety as the company's market cap threatens to dip back below $1 trillion. All of that in a moment, but first let's get a look at the market stocks climbing after a volatile trading day in the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100 outperforming. Bloomberg's Ritika Gupta has the latest. Ritika, why the turn from yesterday? Yes, Emily, it's quite interesting that we do see stocks finishing the day in the green. And as you mentioned, NASDAQ 100 really outperforming here. And a lot of it, Emily, down to some of those heavyweights, your Apple, your Amazons in particular, leading that uh, index higher. But I will point out that a lot of the impetus, that momentum really started gaining after the Fed minutes. We're starting to see traders kind of paring back their expectations of just how aggressive the pace of rate hikes may be. And that's on some of those growth fears. So you didn't see much change in that 10-year yield. But the two-year yield, uh, which is more sensitive to Fed policy changes just ticking up a little higher. And then I do have to touch on NVIDIA. They just had their earnings out. You see that stock down some 7% in after-hours trade. They missed the analyst estimates. They've been expecting some robust profit and growth. But this stock on a year-to-date basis down some 40% or so. I mean, it's quite surprising. Just back in November, we were talking about it being close to a $1 trillion market cap valuation. But this, Emily, is a story broader in the chip space. If you 
you think back to last year, we saw chips surging off the chip shortage. But what we're seeing this year is that momentum has really started to wane. And NVIDIA mentioned the key issue there really about the supply chain issues from those COVID China lockdowns. But it's also about valuations, Emily, because investors have been shunning some of these high PE stocks that we've seen in the tech space, particularly in this chip makers. Emily. I do want to get to these annual general meetings all happening today, many of them in tech, Twitter, Amazon, and Meta. We were all following these. What were your key takeaways? Yes, Emily. Well, let's start off with Twitter. That one very closely watched a lot of the uh, buzz because, of course, the drama surrounded by the Elon Musk takeover drama. But that vote actually set to happen at a later date. We did get the news that founder Jack Dorsey stepping down off the board and a key director also failing his re-election bid. Let's move it on to Amazon, though, because the shareholders rejecting all of the proposals that were in place to make uh, the conditions better for the workers. This company's come under a lot of scrutiny because of those conditions for workers, as we know, and also the, the stock split being approved by shareholders at 20 to 1. That's set to take place in June, Emily. All right, Ritika Gupta, thank you for that roundup. Meantime, we are learning new details about the deadly and devastating shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Texas Governor Greb Abbott saying the 18-year-old gunman who killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School posted about his plans on Facebook in the minutes before the attack. As of this time, the only information that was known in advance was posted by the gunman on Facebook approximately 30 minutes before reaching the school. The first post was to the point of, he said, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. The second post was, I shot my grandmother. The third post, maybe less than 15 minutes before arriving at the school was, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. Facebook spokesperson Andy Stone, however, clarified in direct replies on Twitter that the messages the governor described were private one-to-one -one text messages that were discovered after the tragedy occurred. I want to bring in our Bloomberg Technology Executive Editor Tom Giles to discuss. So what exactly do we know about these messages? There is a big distinction between a public post and a private message. Absolutely. Major distinction and what a horrific set of developments. What we know is that once, when these things happen, there's always a question about what role social media played in either broadcasting them, glorifying them, was social media involved in any way, could this have been prevented? Those questions always arise. In this instance, what Greg Abbott said was taken to mean that somehow he was publicizing his intentions, that he had made this in a public setting. When you say post on Facebook, that makes it sound like he's putting it out there for everyone to hear, suggesting that maybe could this have been prevented? Maybe was Facebook in some way involved in this terrible way? Quickly, Facebook comes out and says, wait, these were private one-to-one -one messages, not the kinds of things that could have been seen by the public. 
We are trying to get clarification from Abbott's office as we speak to determine what he meant by that. Was he referring to some public or semi-public part of Facebook, maybe in groups? Was there something out there that we could have seen? Now, none of us has seen anything publicly on Facebook. Obviously, that would be blasted all over social media if somebody had used the public news feed on Facebook to talk about this kind of thing. We don't have any evidence of that. We're seeking clarification from Abbott's office as we speak. But thus far, Facebook has been like, this was private one-to-one. -one. Right. So can, can we confirm, though, that these were on a Facebook platform, private because Facebook doesn't have text messages, right. if you will. There are direct right. messages. Right, there's the direct, there's DMing, there's WhatsApp. there's WhatsApp, there's the kinds of communications that you can use, you can use Instagram for, but how much of that does, does Facebook have access to? Now, in a case like this, if the shooter or the alleged shooter was a Facebook user, Facebook would have justification for going into his private messaging, but we don't know which platform on Facebook if it was in fact a Facebook platform that he used. Well, and Andy Stone also says in this Twitter message that they are coordinating, cooperating with law enforcement in their ongoing investigation. Right. So Facebook is now somehow involved Absolutely. in this investigation. Um, what do you make of the way that Facebook is communicating this though? Through direct replies on Twitter, not some maybe put out a, a face, statement. Facebook statement, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it could I be mean, more clear. In fairness, in fairness to Facebook, I mean, in Meta, right? Twitter is an official platform. I mean, it is recognized as a way of getting the statement out there. I would like Facebook, Meta, to be more clear about which messaging platform they're talking about here. And remember, you know. In cases like this, law enforcement will will want to move very, very quickly to get any private communications. They use power of subpoena. They use court orders. They're able to get access to these kinds of things that ordinarily big tech does not want to share. But in this instance, obviously, Meta has a great interest in helping law enforcement and the greater public get to the bottom of how its platform may have been used. And incredibly important that we do get to the bottom of it, given the gravity of this situation. Tom Giles, our executive editor, thank you so much for sharing what we know now with us. Jack Dorsey is off Twitter's board. That is just one of a few developments from Twitter's annual shareholder meeting. His departure was announced earlier this year, but it's still notable since it is the first time since 2006 that he has had no formal role at the company. No new details on Elon Musk's takeover deal were shared, but his shadow loomed large. CEO Parag Agarwal opened his remarks by addressing concerns about misinformation and bias more broadly. We are constantly improving our product, our policies, and our processes in order to earn more trust. We believe Twitter is a place for different voices and perspectives to be heard. Our rules are enforced objectively on content and accounts, and our policies remain neutral to political identity and ideology. Our own Ed Ludlow joining us now, who's been following the meeting all day, and no vote, Ed, on the Elon Musk deal, but just how big was his shadow over this meeting today? 
Yeah, you know, shareholders found a way to get the references in there, right? There was one proposal from Arjuna Capital, which you know really well, um, on having a new board member with a high level of expertise in human and civil rights. And the point that Natasha Lamb and Arjuna made was, had Twitter had a better track record in human civil rights, they'd have a better track record on free speech and freedom of expression. And we would not be where we are with the world's richest man trying to take the company private to fix the issue of freedom of speech, which, of course, is one of the big rationales behind his decisions by the company, he says. Now, just after the meeting ends, Elon Musk files a new uh, 13D where he boosts the equity right. portion of the deal but reduces the debt portion of the deal. Can you explain why this is significant? Yeah, it is significant. So the equity portion is now at $33.5 billion. He's essentially removed altogether the margin loan component. That's significant because the margin loan component had a loan-to-value ratio of 20%. So Elon Musk had to stump up a, a big number of Tesla shares to meet the dollar value as collateral. That's gone. He, in turn, concurrently, concurrently is adding another $6.25 billion of equity financing. But as part of the filing, we learned he's talking to existing shareholders about rolling their public shares into the private entity, something he'd stated previously he would do. Jack Dorsey is among those shareholders that he's speaking to. Significant because it essentially de-risks the entire thing, right? I'm interested to hear what your next guest has to say on that point. But it will be also interesting to see who he brings in because he's talking about, even though he's added $6.25 billion of equity financing that he's backing, who else might join this? Some really interesting names are already there, right? Larry Ellison being one. A big question I have is, like, is this just Elon Musk searching for cash or are there strategic elements here in terms of the people he's bringing in for a new look private Twitter? Interesting. Okay, Ed Ludlow outside Twitter headquarters there in San Francisco. I want to bring in that next guest now, Ross Gerber of Gerber Kawasaki, CEO and president there, also a Twitter shareholder. Look, there was no vote taken on the Musk deal today, Ross, but if you could have voted, are you for or against? Oh, I'm for it 100%. I mean, I can't wait for it to happen. I think Elon's going to do a phenomenal job fixing this wonderful asset. So have you increased your Twitter position since the sell-off, and are you continuing to boost it ahead of this deal? Absolutely. Absolutely. The fact that people don't believe that Elon is serious about taking this company over just proves how many people don't really understand Elon after all these years. So he's dead serious on completing this deal. Um, and it, it is at a price of over $54, and there is no renegotiation going on. So, you know, I very much believe he's going to complete the deal. So, look, some shareholders are excited, like you. Some shareholders are skeptical. Natasha Lamb, as I've mentioned, very skeptical about how Elon Musk will handle free speech, human rights, civil rights issues. What do you think about those more nuanced and very complicated issues? Well, I think that it's silly to think that Elon Musk's new job is going to be the arbitrator of free speech on Twitter. That's not his goal in taking over the company. I think what he's trying to do is put in a management team and a transparent system so that the users of Twitter fully understand what and what isn't allowed on the platform. What I think most people are upset about, including myself with Twitter, is just the sort of arbitrary nature that decisions are made and the lack of transparency. And I, I think by bringing transparency, which he's already been pushing really hard, 
hard on Twitter, at Twitter, to get more transparency, I think will be very beneficial for the users of Twitter. Now, interestingly, we heard Parag Agarwal reiterate the company's mission to serve a diversity of views. But earlier this month, Elon Musk announced that he will be voting Republican. How does that strike you? Is that good for Twitter? <laughs> you know, Elon and I are in the same camp here. We're both ex-Democrats, and I, I'm never going to be a Republican because I can't stand them. But, but you know, I'm, I've become an independent voter, and I think what Elon is saying is true. I worked very, very hard to get Joe Biden in as president, and I'm a very big believer in the, the, the values that the Democrats represent, and they've achieved nothing. They've achieved none of the agenda that they set out to achieve, and they've really disappointed uh, big supporters like myself, and especially entrepreneurs who they've attacked and constantly saying that we don't pay our fair share when we do. And so it's just, they've pushed the, you know, especially successful entrepreneurs of the, out of the Democratic Party, and, and I'm right. one of them too. Well, speaking about a, a big-time entrepreneur who is now out at Twitter, Jack Dorsey, the era of Jack Dorsey is officially over. We knew this was coming. No formal role at the company now. But, you know, we can assume he will still have some influence. His tweets will carry some influence. What do you think is the significance of Jack leaving? Well, I, I think he'll be back. I think he'll be back. Um, How so? Well, I think he's going to mean I think he's in with this Elon stuff. I, I mean, I would be surprised if he's not working with Elon at all. Um, he seems to be on Twitter, you know, sort of jumping on the arguments that Elon's are making and seem to be defending Elon's positions. Um, so I'm not really sure what's next for Jack. Um, I think he's really focused on Square, which as a Square shareholder, I want him to be. And I, I think he'll play a role in the new Twitter. Meantime, Silver Lake's Egon Durbin didn't get enough votes. Shareholders did not reelect him to the board. What's your reaction to that? Um, I, it's hard to understand, you know, why certain shareholders are on the board and not on the board, especially when they have large stakes in the company where that might have changed. Um, so, you know, I find that to be significant because Silver Lake is a major player, but I think it has to do with the, the changing nature of what's going on. So there might be some conflicts of interest involved as well. Um, maybe they're involved with the, the new takeover, so they don't want to have a conflict by having somebody on the board. So it's just really hard to tell why these moves are being made. Meta also held its shareholder meeting today. Peter Thiel no longer on the board there, so that's also the end of an era. He's going to work more on the Trump agenda. I'm curious for your thoughts on Twitter versus Facebook. I know you don't, you don't, you have a minuscule position in Facebook. You know, also versus Snap, especially given social media right. stocks getting pummeled and Snap coming out saying they're going to miss their guidance. Right, and we've spent a good day looking at snap and i have friends at snap so you know i was trying to figure out what the hell is going on there and these are three different stories and and i think that they're playing out differently so snap is just getting eaten by tiktok you know there's not much more to it tiktok is like a a vacuum of young people's eyeballs and it's just snapchat hasn't been able to compete and and there's nothing more to it than that meta and you know facebook and instagram are also suffering from the tiktok thing and the apple privacy changes which are really affecting instagram and facebook um and their targeting but also a lot of ad you know, people are saying, hey, you know, you need to move some of your Instagram budget to TikTok. And that's what's happening. So that puts pressure on Facebook and, and Meta, not to mention, 
you know, there really hasn't been any innovation there in a long time, and the younger generation isn't using Facebook. And then with Twitter, it's really, to me, the news. So it serves a completely different demographic than the Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook demo, and it really serves people who are looking for information. And therefore, to me, it's a much more powerful and valuable platform. And in fact, Twitter is probably the most valuable, you know, information platform you know, in the world. And if you look at the depth of the global leaders and, and users, um, there really is nothing like it. And and as an investor, I I can't even imagine trying to be an investor and not use Twitter. So I think Twitter has a lot more intrinsic value than the other platforms. All right. Ross Gerber, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki. Always love having your views here, Ross. Thank you. Coming up, Twitter, as we said, not the only one holding its shareholder meeting today. Meta as well, and Amazon. It was Andy Jassy's first as CEO. We'll get an update on how it all went down next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Amazon also holding its annual shareholder meeting, the first for CEO Andy Jassy. I'm joined now by Bloomberg Spencer Soper, who, of course, covers Amazon for us. Spencer, what were the big takeaways in Andy Jassy's responses to some of these resolutions? Well, the, uh, a big one 
there were several regarding worker treatment, and uh, Jassy really had to respond to that and uh, just these high injury rates. Amazon was hiring uh, a lot of people through the pandemic, and Jassy was trying to explain that there a lot of them are new to industrial work environments. Therefore, uh, injury rates climbed, even though Amazon made this pledge to uh, you know to make it you know the the best place to work and to to really target reducing the injury rates. So he's definitely like trying to buy some time there by explaining the unique circumstances around the pandemic. Then there was also an advisory vote on pay. And it was uh, a big deal because you have Jassy, who was promoted into this role as CEO, as you know, not, not someone who built the company himself, but was, you know, promoted into to uh, succeed Jeff Bezos. Um, you know, some influential advisory firms saying that uh, Jassy and two other executives, their pay is not uh, linked strongly enough to company performance. They want to see if right, they're going to be right. paid substantial amounts of money that it better be more more directly tied to the performance of the company. So quickly on that, you've got Amazon shares dipping nearly below a trillion dollars uh, in market cap. How concerned are shareholders about that quickly? That did come up, uh, and Jassy addressed it. And one of the questions shareholder shareholders had was, you know, you're you're firing in so many directions. You've got so many things going on. You know, what if you're more focused? Would that make the company more profitable? And Jassy's response to that was, uh, you know, well, look at we had Amazon Web Services, and when it was in its gestational period and infancy stage, you know, people were very critical of that or had a lot of questions about that. So it was a big gamble, and we turned it into this huge, you know, multi-billion-dollar business. So I guess he's trying to make the case that you can't afford to not invest in things even when even when profitability is down all right bloomberg spencer soper thank you for giving us the roundup on annie jassy's first agm Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Get back now to the markets and uh, hone in on social media stocks. Ritika, take it away. Yes, Emily. Well, I'll start off with the broader markets, which we did see moving higher today. And it was the Nasdaq 100 that outperformed. It was some of your heavier weights, your uh, your Amazon, your Tesla, and even your Apple pushing that index up higher today. And that impetus, that really started to come out after those Fed minutes. It was this idea that maybe Fed policymakers weren't as aggressive as the market was expecting. You didn't see much changes in the 10-year yield, but the two-year yield, that's more sensitive to Fed policy changes. That did tick just a touch higher and I also point to the VIX that is aka that big age this was lower today and this is as we get a bit more of a risk on field today and speaking of risk on you mentioned it Emily those social media stocks that plunged yesterday we are seeing them get we saw them get a big bid today snap actually bouncing back up some nearly 11% but we know that these stocks behind me I mean perhaps investors thought they were a little bit oversold yesterday and they're swooping in on some bargains but on a year-to-date basis they've all been down in the double digits it's the concerns of a slowdown, what that means for ad revenues. But it isn't, Emily, just social media companies that are suffering this year. That's represented by the uh, orange line there on my chart. They're down some 37% on a year-to-date basis. But it's also your SPAC index. It's also your IPO index. It's also the ARK ETF and the NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index, which has the Chinese tech, arguably has its own regulation challenges. But you can see clearly investors shunning some sort of speculative or more riskier assets and honing in on some of those relatively more safe plays, Emily. 
All right, Ritika, thank you. And while we did see that slight rebound in social media and tech stocks in general, big concerns still looming about the future of digital ads. Joined now by Mark Mahaney, Senior Managing Director and Head of the Internet Research Team at Evercore. Mark, yes, Snap bounced back a little bit today, but remember they lost 43% yesterday, so regained about 10% about of that today. You know, how concerned are you about Snap? I think uh, I share most of the market's concerns. The open question is how much of this is macro, which is impacting all, which therefore impacts a whole bunch of these names, particularly the ad names, and how much of this is, is Snap specific. And I guess I started off thinking this was largely macro. I was taking the company at, at face value. Um, but, you know, there is a track record here, and this company has had a, <laughs> a couple of uh, surprises along the way, including in the September quarter last year when they had said they wouldn't have any impact from Apple, and then they said they did. So there's a bit of a... There's a, bit of, there's a greater credibility issue here at Snap. Now, I assume that uh, they are seeing a lot of macro pressures. This company has a lot of exposure to brand advertising. That would be the first to get cut in a uh, recession. They also have uh, substantial exposure to Europe, which I think is a reasonably, one could reasonably assume that's going to see uh, pressure first before the U.S. does. So a lot of what they're seeing probably is a broader read through the ad names. But, you know, this is a couple of times that this has happened. So it, maybe it's not terribly surprising this stock gets taken down more than the other ad names. So how much of this could be TikTok eating Snap's lunch specifically? Yes. Look, uh, you, you're asking the right question. If it isn't macro, what could it be? Or if in addition to macro, what are the other could, what could other factors could there be? Um, it could be TikTok. It could well be uh, ad budgets that slipped over to um, Snap in the wake of the Apple privacy changes, slipping back to Facebook. Um, it could be um, additional uh, Apple privacy changes. I mean, there's a series series of things that a uh, Apple could still do to kind of tighten screws on the ad ecosystem that could be having an issue on uh, on Snap. And then there could just be that this company is much more exposed to brand advertising than the market realizes. And again, that's the, probably the part of Internet advertising in a, in, a, in a downturn that gets hit first. And what would get hit last are the performance marketing channels. Of course, Google, but a lot of Facebook. That would be hit last because it's more performance marketing based. So anyway, TikTok is an issue. There's a couple of these other things that could all be kind of piling up on, uh, on Snap now. It is just such a surprise to have that guidance change in just a month's period. So it's probably macro, but it could well be a few other factors. So there's a big question what this means for other social media companies, even though they're all in the middle of, of, of some fairly different narratives. Twitter, for example, just wrapping their AGM today. You know, no vote on Elon Musk, but of course, you know, concerns, excitement about the deal looming large uh, over that meeting today. You know, what's your take on what direction this is going to go? We just saw Elon Musk raise his equity portion of the deal. Well, um, I, I assume he's not going to walk away from the deal. I assume that he'd love to get a lower price. Whether he can get it or not will really come uh, around to whether those shareholders that um, he talked with and I think convinced that he would be a good buyer of their stock at, at with a 54.20 price, whether they would be really still willing to sell it to him at 45 or 40 or some lower price. And I don't know who has the most leverage in that uh, in that environment. Um, maybe he does. I assume he really still wants to have this asset, that he really doesn't want to waste a billion dollars. And, uh, and of course, I would take uh, uh, Twitter's uh, shares down. But I think at the end of the day, Elon Musk wants to own Twitter. So my, my guess is that this gets negotiated maybe at a lower price. Or we're going to be spending a lot of time in courts for the next year, which would be unfortunate for everybody involved.
And how uh, insulated do you think Twitter and Facebook are from the problems that Snap is facing? Or are, are they really in the same boat? Yeah, Emily, I don't think they're insulated at all. But I'm sorry, I don't think Twitter at all is insulated. I think uh, Twitter has got you know relatively material exposure to Europe, and uh, it's uh, very heavily into brand advertising. Again, that's probably the weakest part of the internet advertising ecosystem, and that's 75% of Twitter's total revenue. So if uh, that's what's being hurt and that's what's taking down Snap, it would be taking down Twitter in droves. I think there's also probably going to be a lot of dislocation at Twitter. Look, this was a hostile takeover. What do you expect? I mean, you get. A, You've disenfranchised or disincentivized, that's probably the better word. A lot of the employees, you've had turnover, a lot of uncertainty over you know, whether people are going to keep their jobs. So, of course, it almost certainly it's going to lead to poor or less or suboptimal execution. All of that's going to pile up and probably hurt uh, Twitter's fundamentals near term. Anyway, this doesn't help with the issues that Snap talks about. If, in fact, they are seeing loss of ad budgets to Twitter, if they're seeing macro pressure on their display advertising, Twitter's going to see all of that. Facebook, much less so. But they'll see a smidgen of that and Google the least of all those. But just remember, as we go through these uh, mm -hmm. major recessions, you and I watched this. Uh, Google went uh, growth rate cratered to only 3% year over year during the great financial crisis. And then during the COVID quarter, it went negative. So uh, Google's not immune to you know full-blown advertising recession. Well, and let's talk about another big tech company where you know the gains from the pandemic have been completely erased. And that is Amazon, we're seeing Amazon's market cap get close back to that $1 trillion mark. Amazon also holding their um, annual shareholder meeting today. It's Andy Jassy's uh, first one at the helm. You know, what were your takeaways from what we heard there and, you know, whether Amazon can turn it around? The, the one, I'm, I'm sure Amazon can turn it around. I, I look at Amazon as kind of what I call a DHQ, dislocated high-quality stock. Uh, it's the most successfully diversified tech asset that I follow. Now, I don't follow Apple, but it's the most uh, um, <laughs> successfully uh, diversified in terms of advertising, cloud, retail. And then I think there's a couple of other targets that they can go after, including logistics and business supplies, uh, et cetera. And I think groceries, that probably falls into retail. But I think I think that's a, new, that's a, that's a big area for them. So I'm not worried about the long-term term outlook really for Amazon. I think they can execute their way. I think they've got some good growth initiatives. The, the nuance I picked up from today, at least from the headlines, and we haven't picked them all up yet, is the focus on cost uh, efficiencies. And so, yeah, I think the company, um, it, company did something rare. I don't recall, Emily, Amazon ever coming out and saying we overbuilt, uh, but that's what mm. they said on the March quarter uh, earnings call, that they that they they made a mistake and they over-extrapolated when they were making their CapEx plans, their distribution center build-out plans. At the end of 2020 and beginning of 21, they over-extrapolated trends. I don't blame them for doing that. I think I probably did that too. I think the market obviously did that too, but Amazon did that, and now they've got excess capacity both on the labor force side and on the fiscal plan side. And the investor question is, how long will it take you to work through that? And what if we're going into recession, well, that's just going to make that, 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 that capacity utilization build back up time longer and longer. But uh, I, I think they'll get through this. And, uh, and I think you know, if I look at the stock right now, if you're a long-term investor, not a trader, but an investor, you should be buying, at least taking partial positions in Amazon here today. Well, certainly it will be interesting to watch how Andy Jassy steers this ship. Evercore's Mark Mahaney. Always good to have you, Mark. Thank you.
probably going to hit $8,000 before. What was this, that number? 8,000. 8, until we totally flush <laughs> so out what's no going on. So you have no bond holdings? No. Okay, I mean, well, if I were, I'd be short. Could Bitcoin fall as low as $8,000? That was Guggenheim Partners Chief Investment Officer Scott Minard there speaking in Davos. He's a known skeptic on crypto, though at one point a couple of years ago, he was optimistic enough to predict Bitcoin would hit $400,000. Of course, we're still far from that. I want to bring in Noelle Atchison now for her perspective. She's the head of Market Insights at Genesis Trading, a digital currency prime broker. Noelle, what do you think? $8,000? What's going to come first, that or four hundred? dollars <laughs> Well, between eight and four hundred, there's certainly quite a wide range. I mean, you know the saying: if you're going to predict, predict with very wide ranges, right? Uh, thank you so much for having Emily. I do have to say that anything I say are my opinions, not those of my employer. And of course, nothing I say is investment advice. And first of all, huge respect to Mr. Minard. He was one of the first institutional investors, one of the early ones to look at Bitcoin, and he did do his homework back in the day. But later on in this interview that you showed a part of, he did say that his predictions of eight thousand was based on technicals because there's nothing else, I more or less quote there. And that is overlooking the growing adoption and the fixed supply. This is something that many people tend to forget, that no matter how high the Bitcoin price or how large the demand, the supply remains fixed. That's a fundamental feature right there. Bitcoin's demand, which is growing, could multiply by a thousand times. The, the, the supply will remain fixed. Its price could go up by 10x. The supply will remain fixed. That's a pretty compelling investment case right there, Emily. I want to ask you about some of the the, the wreckage uh, in the wake of this Terra disaster. They now have a new plan that's been approved to split the Terra blockchain into Terra Classic and Luna Classic. What do you make of this as a path forward? Well, you can imagine uh, crypto Twitter today is having a field day with this. I must say that anything that gives those that lost a lot of money a chance to get some of that money back should be entertained. I mean, that would be a very good development. That said, a lot of trust has been broken here. A lot of trust needs to be recovered, which, actually, I mean, when you come to think of it, is quite ironic that trust is still such a, a, a firm component of a system that was designed to not need centralized trust, to be able to have a decentralized trust mechanism. It shows that we can't get rid of the trust component after all. Well, so I wonder what the path forward is then also for regulators. We know that the House Committee on Financial Services is going to be talking about digital assets. For example, could a Fed, you know, Fed central bank digital dollar, uh, so to speak, be possible? It's certainly possible. In fact, in some parts of the world, we already are seeing central bank digital currencies. And my opinion is that, yes, we will see central bank digital currencies be quite commonplace within five years. And the, the form that this will take is still being hotly debated. It has many potential uh, efficiency features. There are also some risks. We need to be careful. But what is most interesting, and going back to what you mentioned earlier about the, the terror implosion, is that this will accelerate regulatory clarity not just about crypto assets, but about stable coins, their potential use in global trade, their potential convenience for consumer services as well. It's a fascinating field. And standing here right in the middle of it, where it's all happening, watching what is arguably one of the most profound transformations of how we transact with each other as entities, as individuals, as sovereigns even. It's, a, it's an exciting time to be looking at this space.
Now, someone who is optimistic is Andreessen Horowitz. They just announced a record $4.5 billion crypto fund. What do you make of the influence that Andreessen Horowitz has on the crypto ecosystem more broadly? They've got quite a bit of money at stake here. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of money, and that's their main influence. But what they have announced today is a reminder of just how much money is still sitting on the sidelines. We've had a frothy time of it in the crypto markets recently, certainly not because of the price, but valuations have been very high. Hiring has been very accelerated. I know of many investors who have been uncomfortable with this. They're sitting it out because they think the valuations are crazy. I know of many entrepreneurs that have walked out of initial pitch meetings with with signed term sheets and many other investors anecdotally have told me that if they don't come up with a term sheet after the first meeting they're out of the deals that's kind of a crazy time that's frothy not because of price unlike other frothy markets that we've had what happened in the market crash the week of May the 11th is a cold a cold jar of water a jar of cold water on the entire system has knocked a lot of the froth out so the vast amount of money that has been sitting on the sidelines a lot of it coming from Andreessen Horowitz and their funds will now have better opportunities in which to invest. We'll be able to take their time and really do some due diligence and perhaps be more careful. That's another thing the terror implosion reminded all of us, that we actually do need to be careful and really think things through. The regulators also, no doubt, are going to be taking a more careful look at some of the stable coins and some of the other projects because protection is part of their, part of their role. But now that the froth seems to have a slightly different tone, I expect us to see different kinds of investment deals. So there's a a lot of money out there, a lot of belief in the potential of the crypto industry to transform not just finance, but many other aspects of our culture. And that's going to be very well, exciting. I wonder quickly, and I think about a company like MicroStrategy, how do you think these massive price fluctuations are going to impact institutional sentiment quickly? One thing that needs to change is the accounting principles for companies like MicroStrategy. That's a very different issue. Institutional sentiment has taken a hit, but it has certainly not gone, gone away. This is something that we see at Genesis every single day. We are still talking to them. They are still investing. They are still trading. But a bit more caution is definitely the tone that we're seeing. All right. Noelle Atchison, Genesis Trading. Thank you for sharing your thoughts Thank with us. Thank you very much, Emily. Coming up. The future of AI in keeping people safe on the rolls and promoting fuel efficiency. I'll chat with a CEO that's trying to make that happen. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk now about the future of AI and helping to make driving safer. Motive, the tech company formerly known as Keep Truckin', just raised a new funding round at nearly $3 billion valuation, and it's planning to invest in artificial intelligence capabilities, including dash cams that can identify unsafe driving. For more, I'm joined by Motive co-founder and CEO, Shoaib Makani. Shoaib, thank you so much for joining us. So talk to us about how the technology works, specifically the dash cams. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, so really at, at Motive, our mission is to unlock uh, the potential of the physical economy. Uh, we, we serve uh, industries like construction, uh, energy, transportation, agriculture. Uh, and what we do is we build technology that allows them to improve uh, safety uh, and productivity of their operations. Uh, one of our products, as you mentioned, uh, is the AI Dashcam, uh, which is really a market-leading technology uh, that helps our customers uh, understand how their drivers are performing on the road and actually in real time uh, improve driving performance by observing the driver uh, and, uh, and alerting them of unsafe behaviors. Um, you know, in, in uh, our analysis, uh, we've, we've observed uh, almost a 22% reduction uh, in accidents and road fatalities uh, for our customers who deploy this technology. Who are your customers and what are the growth opportunities you see ahead? Yeah, we, we serve really um, what we call the physical economy. Um, these are industries that uh, move things, build stuff, uh, serve customers in the physical world. Uh, industries like construction, agriculture, transportation, logistics. Uh, and, and really, it, it, it's a segment of the economy that has been underserved from a technology perspective. Um, th these industries haven't had uh, modern technology to drive uh, the efficiency gains, the productivity gains. Uh, that are necessary for them to keep up with uh, what is a continuously expanding uh, demand for their output. Uh, and so we, we build technology that enables these businesses uh, to thrive. So let's talk about what you're going to do with this funding. You know, do you have expansion plans in mind, perhaps beyond uh, the United States? Yeah, we, well, so, so, you know, we, we're uh, definitely investing in growth. 
uh, monitoring the macro environment uh, and the health of our customers closely to make sure that uh, we're, we're taking the right actions to make sure we can we can build great products for them, uh, but but also uh, you know react to what is an evolving uh, market condition. Um, importantly, you know our, our customers are facing incredible inflationary pressures. Uh, the cost of their inputs is is rising, uh, and and our technology in that sense actually can be fundamentally deflationary. Uh, if if we deliver on our promise of driving safety productivity, uh, helping them actually reduce their fuel costs, their maintenance costs, uh, we can help these businesses uh, be more efficient and to thrive no matter what happens in the macro environment. Um, and so, so we, we're very much investing in growth. Uh, there's three really key areas that uh, we're doubling down. Uh, number one, AI-powered automation. Uh, we, we think the source of operating leverage for the physical economy is going to come uh, through productivity gains uh, that, are hap that happen through automation. Um, number two, uh, we're, we're investing in fintech. Uh, so uh, we recently launched the Motive Card. Uh, it's a zero-fee corporate card that helps our customers uh, save on fuel, maintenance, tires, the things that they spend uh -huh. money on, um, but also uh, you know, give them controls to be able to reduce fraud and reduce um, excess spend. Uh, and so we're going to be doubling down there and then also going up market and serving larger and larger customers. All right. Shoaib Makani, co-founder and CEO of Motive. We'll keep watching you. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We are back here tomorrow. Thomas Curian, the CEO of Google Cloud, will be with us. You don't want to miss it. And don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find that anywhere you get your podcast. Get your daily Bloomberg Tech Roundup. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. down has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg join heads of state influential ministers and leading ceos to make new connections gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions request your invite for this exclusive event at carter economic forum.com